The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to the Money Answer Show with host Jordan Goodman. Whether you are starting out, deep into your retirement, or somewhere in between, the Money Answer Show has the know-how to help you. Now here's your host, Jordan Goodman. Welcome to the Money Answer Show. This is Jordan Goodman, your host. My guest this hour is Doug Warshower, uh, who is the author of a new book uh, called If I'm So Smart, Where Did All My Money Go? Uh, he is also the founder of Kessler Warshower Ventures, a private equity firm based in Morton Grove, Illinois. Welcome to the show, Doug. Thank you. Glad to be here. Let's just start a little bit with your background, uh, both as a private equity guy and, and somebody who has uh, done a financial book like this. Sure. Well, I've really been investing in private equity for about 10 years, and that has been my life up until a couple of years ago when I sat down to write this book. My business has been investing in and managing businesses, and as part of doing that, I developed the real expertise in doing financial models for businesses, and that was what really led me into writing this book, because in uh, late 2008, when we had the real bad financial crisis, it struck me that the people who had bought the homes whose mortgages were at the center of the financial crisis really needed a different kind of advice about how to manage their money and that the techniques I used to model businesses really could be translated into modeling people's financial lives and not just businesses' financial lives. And that's what led to the research that ultimately turned out to be the book, If I'm So Smart, Where Did All My Money Go? So let's take an overall look before we get into some of the details of it. How do most Americans manage their money, pretty well or not so well? Well, I think that you can tell by the state of our economy that most Americans don't manage their money too well. You, you can look at uh, the amount of credit card debt that people have, the number of ho- homes that are in foreclosure, and you don't need a whole lot more information than that to know that people really have trouble managing their money. And why is that? Well. My personal belief is that it is difficult for people to do all the things they want to do with their money in the world that we live in. And we have expectations about how we're going to live our life, and that those expectations don't naturally blend easily with the amount of money that we have. And so we end up stretching ourselves too thin, and we say, well, I want to save a lot of money so that I'll be able to send my kids to college and have a good retirement. But at the same time, I'm trying to do all that saving. I've got to buy a really nice car and live in a really nice house and buy a couple of iPhones for my family and for my kids. And, and we wind up trying to do more than we can. Do you think to some extent individuals are taking a cue from governments that are spending more than they're, uh, particularly on the federal level, and they're taking in? Well, the government's made up of individuals, right? So this is a problem that that crosses the boundaries because it's the same people who are running the government who have the same financial problems in their own lives. 
You start the book with a prologue about Joe's story. Just tell us briefly about the story that, of Joe and how that uh, can help people a little bit. Sure. Well, the book is really written as a, uh, a book of fiction. Even though it's a nonfiction subject, it is a story of about ten different characters who come together in this personal finance seminar. And it's written as a book of fiction so that we have these examples of people who go through the same types of financial problems that everybody else does in their real lives. And through these fictional characters, it's much easier to learn about how to manage your own money well. So we start with the, the story of Joe, who's a 23-year-old who's just come out of college a year or so ago and got a pretty good job making more money than he ever expected to make. And thinking that he was making so much money, he could spend whatever he wanted on whatever he wanted. He finds out about a year after starting that job that he has dug himself into $20,000 of debt. And that story, I think, will be a familiar one to many, many people. And so we get into the question of how did he get himself into how much debt, so much debt, and what should he be doing differently so that he can get his life back on track. Isn't it harder for people to get themselves in trouble today because credit is so much tighter and the banks just aren't lending the way they were in the past? It's a little bit harder, and that's a good thing. But uh, is, although it's harder to get yourself into trouble today from that perspective, there are a lot of people who have already gotten themselves into trouble. And you can still, even if you weren't in trouble before, you can still get into trouble now. You just need to maybe work at it a little bit harder. Uh, what is the difference for people who already were in debt before things uh, happened as far as interest rates and fees? Is the debt that they got into before more burdensome now than when they got into it? Well, I think it, it's burdensome for everybody. The, the real question is, what are you going to do to get yourself out of it? Because whether your interest rate is 12%, 15%, 18%, or 20%, it, those are burdensome numbers whether you're in the high end or the low end of the range. And so you really need a plan and a strategy for what you can do to get yourself out of debt and get your financial house back in order so that you can achieve all the different financial goals that you have that got yourself into debt in the first place. The problem is when we want to do more than we can afford and we don't realize that we're spending more than we can afford. That's how, how debt starts to build up. And so you need to unwind that process and then start thinking about how do you manage your money so that you can do all the things that you want to do within the constraints of the amount of money that you have. You start with the chapter one on income and expenses and kind of go through uh, the kind of expenses people have on uh, different worksheets, like you start with household expenditures. What, what are some surprises that people might have that they wouldn't normally think of? I mean, they, people probably have a pretty good sense of what their household expenses are, so why do they need to do a worksheet like that? Well, the hard part is that people have a pretty good idea of what they spend on a week-to-week or maybe even a month-to-month -month basis. But there are a variety of expenses which come in every once in a while. And that if you're only looking on a week-to-week -week basis, you don't capture those in, in your mental construct of how much money you're spending. So, some examples of that might be the real estate taxes that you pay on your house, or we're now coming up on the holiday season. A lot of people have expenditures during the holiday season with gifts and vacations and things that they don't have on a regular basis. So if you don't really go back a full 12 months and count up all of the money that you spent, it's 
very, very easy to think that you're spending a little bit less than you are. And that little bit can make a big difference, right? You might think that you're spending a few percent less than you earn, and you're actually spending a few percent more than you earn, and that starts to show up in the accumulation of debt over time. Is it just denial, or do people don't realize it? How is it that they I, don't I know don't what they're spending? I don't think it's denial. I think for most people, it's lack of awareness. It's not the, it, if you ask a hundred people how many of you have actually counted up all your expenditures over the last year, very, very few of them are going to tell you that they went through a thorough enough process where they really know what they're spending. Now, it, it might be partly denial because they don't do it because they don't want to know what they're spending. I think that you might have something there. And, and you have to get over the, the fear of knowing that you're doing something wrong and go ahead and take the step. But once you take the step and once you, you start to go through the process of looking at what you're really spending and what you're really earning, you empower yourself to make the decisions that can really turn your life around. Then you have a worksheet number two on your annual household net income. Do people often overestimate what they're taking home in their income? Well, you can overestimate. I think people tend tend to be more wrong about what they're spending than what they're earning because it's a little simpler to know what you're earning. But you do have to make sure you're taking into account all of the different taxes that come out of your income, your Social Security taxes, your state income taxes, your federal income taxes, and then any other payroll deductions that you have for your health insurance or 401k deductions. So you really need to know all of the, the different components that go into your earnings and your expenses so that you can look at the two of them side by side and say, okay, am I making more or less than I'm spending? Do you think a lot of people have a sense of if they're in positive or ca negative cash flow? I, I don't think so. I think that that is a big problem, and that e even if you might have a sense that you are one or the other, you don't know how much, right? You might feel, I know I'm, I'm spending less than I'm earning, but is it 2% or 5% or 10% less? And you really need to, to know with a little more precision because that gap, that savings, gives you the opportunity to meet your long-term goals and that is really the key to your long-term financial success. Okay, we're going to get into that in more detail. Uh, my guest this hour is Doug Washauer. His new book is called If I'm So Smart, Where Did All My Money Go? Uh, Doug is also at uh, Kessler Washauer Ventures, uh, which is a ec private equity firm based in Morton Grove, Illinois. We'll be back after this. Up-to-date business and financial news. Call now and get the financial information you need. 866-472-5790. 866-472-5790. The experts are here. Voice America Business Network. Are you ready to go green? You've asked and we've heard you. Voice America presents the Green Talk Network. 
Environmental topics are at the forefront of our society, and the Green Talk Network is here to keep you up to date on the latest trends and new innovations for the eco-conscious lifestyle. We'll help promote a variety of ideas on the environment, from global warming issues to how you can become more eco-friendly in your daily activities. Be a part of the solution, not the problem. Visit the Green Talk Network page on voiceamerica.com and tune in to help spread the green. Hi, this is Jordan Goodman, host of The Money Answer Show. I cordially invite you to join me and some of my favorite investing experts for the Money Answers Investing Cruise from February 12th through February 19th, 2011, on board Holland America's luxurious MS Eurodam. In this volatile investing environment, good advice is more important than ever, and this exclusive Caribbean cruise offers not only fun, but also a full week of highly informative events with me and other top investing experts like Ray Lucia and Charles Payne from Fox News Network. During seminars, panel discussions, and Q&As, at cocktail parties and at dinners, we will discuss current market conditions and the best places for your investment dollars. Meanwhile, luxuriate in the amenities of Holland America's newest ship and visit some of the best ports for shopping, sightseeing, and sunning. For more information, go to www.moneyanswerscruise.com or call 800-707-1634. That's 800-707-1634. And don't delay because spaces are limited. Income Property Investment Talk with Peter Mosca and Dean Isak provides homeowners and investors eager to invest well in real estate the knowledge, resources, and tools necessary to generate significant wealth. Our focus will be the paradigm. Live where you want. Invest where it makes the most sense. Listen live to the brightest minds in real estate investment every Wednesday morning at 8 a.m. Pacific on the Voice America Business Channel. That's Income Property Investment Talk with Peter Mosca and Dean Isak, where America learns to invest best from the boardroom to you voice america business network you've been listening to the money answer show with jordan goodman if you have a question for jordan or his guest please call us now at 866-472-5790 that's 866-472-5790 now back to jordan welcome back to the money answer show this is jordan goodman your host my guest this hour is doug warshower uh, who is a private equity investor with Kessler Warshower Ventures. He is also the author of a new book, If I'm So Smart, Where Did All My Money Go? And welcome back to the show, Doug. Thank you. Glad to uh, be back. The next uh, chapter is what you call the expenditure budget. So why don't we go into some of the expenditures that, that catch people off guard or they don't really keep uh, good, good track of as they should? Well, the big expenditures are the ones that I like to focus on because that's where people can both get into trouble and get out of trouble. You're spending most of your money, if you're like most people, on housing. And so it's really important that you think about how much money you're spending on housing and how does that fit within your overall objectives. Uh, and the same then goes for the other big ones, which is transportation and food, and then it starts to, to trickle down to some smaller categories. But let's, so let's start, with, start housing with housing. Because yeah. I mean, that's where people spend, in general, about 35% of their net income. And some people spend far more than that, if, especially if you're living in a, a big, expensive city, New York, San Francisco. Those areas tend to require you to spend more than average on housing. Are they taking on bigger houses than they can really afford? 
Well, people often are. And the problem is that they don't know that they are because it isn't obvious to most people how much they can afford to spend on a house. In fact, when, when we think about how much you can spend on a house, you're typically guided by how much you can borrow. We have left it to our lenders to tell us how much we should spend on a house. We go to the bank and we say, how much will you lend me? And they say, well, based on your income and our ratios that we're using at this point in time, this is the amount of money that you're allowed to borrow. And so then we go out and we buy the biggest house that we can, given the the amount of debt that we can get. And I would argue that that is the absolute backwards way to think about how much money you should spend on a house. Instead, you need to start with your own personal objectives and how does housing fit into all of the things that you want to do. And so I tell people, start with the knowledge that 35% is about average for most Americans to spend of their net income on a home. And if you are going to buy a home, that when you add up the mortgage and the real estate taxes and the association dues and the utilities and the repairs and maintenance that you would expect on that home, if you're going to be over 35%, then you need to know where you're going to spend less than average. How are you going to make up that money? Because you can't just spend 45% of your net income on a home and think that everything else can be the same, and that is how we get into trouble. So start with your own budget and determine how much you can afford that way. Do you think as renting might to re- taking re- it from your lender? That renting might make sense instead of buying in some cases. In many cases, renting does make sense. And, and here's how I like people to think about the question of whether to rent or buy. Many people, instead of thinking about their life and what they're going to be doing over the next few years, think in financial terms first. So they think, is, where's the housing market going? How are mortgage rates going? And is this a good time to buy? And I would say, stop thinking about it that way. Instead, think about, am I going to live in this house for 10 years? Or is my life likely to change? And here's the ways people's lives change that force them to move. If you might have a job that is going to require relocating to a different city, you're probably going to have to move. If you're about to get married or you think you might be about to get married and maybe have children in the next few years, you probably aren't going to want to stay in the same home for the next 10 years. If these types of life changes are on the horizon and you're going to need to move in less than 10 years, you need to think seriously about renting. And here's why. The value that you can get in owning a home is the long-term appreciation of that home, and you're building up equity as you pay down your mortgage. The problem is, if you can't stay long enough, the transaction costs in buying and selling the home will wipe out your equity. It costs 5 or 6% to pay the broker to sell your home. It costs another 2 to 4% in the various closing costs that you have in selling and buying a home. It costs another 1% or 2% to move, and sometimes you have taxes on top of all that. So you have to figure 10% of the value of your home is going to disappear any time you sell that home and move to another home. 
So if you have not built up enough equity that you can withstand losing 10% of the value, then buying a home is going to be disastrous from a financial perspective. And that's what happens to people who buy and sell a home every few years. I mean, what happened recently, I guess, was that people were buying more than they could really afford, assuming that there was going to be appreciation and they'd make far more than the 10%, it would work out okay, and that, that didn't work out okay. Is that Yes, that's exactly right. We've got a character, in, um, a couple in the book, Eric and Sally, who are around 30 years old, and they have two young children, and they bought a home a few years ago when the housing market was flying, and like everybody else, they thought they were going to buy this home and flip it for a big profit in a couple of years, and then they'd move into the home that was bigger that would fit them with them being a larger family. And now they're stuck. They bought a home that's too small for all four of them to live in, but the value of that home has gone down instead of up. Their mortgage is underwater. They can't sell the house, and yet it doesn't meet their needs. So they have a big problem. And had they rented the home instead of bought the home, they would have avoided this major problem. And so that's why it's such a great lesson to people to think, if you don't need to buy the home because you're going to be moving in a few years, then don't buy the home. So a lot of people in that circumstance with their house underwater and everything you just mentioned, what should people do in that circumstance these days? Well, if your house is totally underwater and there's nothing you can do as long as you can afford to keep making those payments is to keep making the payments and hope that over time your house is going to increase in value enough so that eventually you've got some positive equity, and then if you really need to move, you can move. So you're not a believer in strategic default, as they call it? Uh, well, I think that for most people that's really the wrong choice for all kinds of reasons. Uh, but a lot so of people are doing it. <laughs> a lot of people are doing it, and, and sometimes you, you get stuck where it, it might be the, the, the least of all evils, but it's certainly not a good situation for most people. And so if you can afford to keep making your payments, and many people, of course, can't, but if, if you can afford to keep making those payments, then you're probably better off doing it. What's so bad about doing strategic default? Say you're wet, you're, you bought a home at the peak in Las Vegas or Phoenix, and it's now worth 300000 less than you paid for it, or you know some enormous amount. And even though you can afford to make the payments, what is wrong with uh, walking away, as a lot of people are doing today? Well, what's wrong with it is now you, you have uh, a default that is going to, to track you for, you know, if not the rest of your life, for, for a good number of years. So it's never uh, a good thing to do. But I suppose what I would hope to be able to help people with is how do you keep yourself from getting out of that situation in the future? What can you do so that you make good decisions instead of bad decisions so that you're not stuck choosing among two or three really, really bad alternatives? The next area you talk about is transportation expenses. Again, what are some things people can do to get that under control better? Well, it's a very similar message to the message about the housing, and that is understand where your car fits into your overall budget. And you need to think about how much of your money do you want to spend towards a car and how much do you want to spend towards all the other items that you're going to need to, to buy to live the life that you want to lead. And the thing that I would like to emphasize about 
people when they buy cars is that you want to buy a car for cash as early in your life as you can. This is a situation where once you buy that first car for cash, you never need to take out a car loan again. And over time, you can save yourself huge amounts of money into the hundreds of thousands of dollars by avoiding the debt payments that go along with car loans because you can buy that first car for cash and then each subsequent time you buy a car, you get the benefit of both the the um, trade-in value of the car that you're going to be exchanging plus the money that you have been saving in between car purchases because you get to save the money and add you, the benefit of interest on the money that you're saving is going to you instead of the higher interest rate that you would be paying to the bank as you're paying off that car loan each time. But how could a young couple trying to save a down payment for a house and all the other expenses accumulate enough cash to buy a car all cash? And that's such a great question. And that's really, in a nutshell, what this whole book is about. How does somebody allocate all of their financial resources among the different goals that they have. So people who are in their 20s need to save to buy that car, and they need to save to buy that first house. And then they're also told, well, you better start saving for retirement, and then they might have a child, and they're going to start saving for their child's college education. And it's really a challenge. And it goes back to what we were talking about at first. Why are so many people getting into financial difficulty now? And the answer is they're stretched among all of these different goals that they have. And the purpose for this book is to teach them how they can actually achieve all of these different goals by taking a very orderly look at allocating your resources among them all. So you're saying it is possible. That's good it, to hear. It's absolutely possible, and it's easier to do than most people think. You just need the right technique in order to do it. Very good. Okay, we're going to take a break. Uh, this is Jordan Goodman of The Money Answer Show. My guest this hour is Doug Warshower, whose new book is called If I'm So Smart, Where Did All My Money Go? We'll be back after this. markets up or down or if you're looking to improve your portfolio our experts are ready to talk to you call now toll free 866-472-5790 that's 866-472-5790 voice america business network Patricia Raskin, the host of Positive Living on VoiceAmerica.com, Monday, 11 Pacific. This program brings you practical and inspiring principles for living a more authentic, engaging, and passionate life. Patricia's guests will give you a formula for connecting, giving, forgiving, and miraculous living. So tune in and call to Positive Living, Mondays at 11 Pacific time, right here on VoiceAmerica.com. Hi, this is Jordan Goodman, host of The Money Answer Show. I cordially invite you to join me and some of my favorite investing experts for the Money Answers Investing Cruise from February 12th through February 19th, 2011, on board Holland America's luxurious MS Eurodam. In this volatile investing environment, 
Good advice is more important than ever, and this exclusive Caribbean cruise offers not only fun, but also a full week of highly informative events with me and other top investing experts like Ray Lucia and Charles Payne from Fox News Network. During seminars, panel discussions, and Q&As, at cocktail parties and at dinners, we will discuss current market conditions and the best places for your investment dollars. Meanwhile, luxuriate in the amenities of Holland America's newest ship and visit some of the best ports for shopping, sightseeing, and sunning. For more information, go to www.moneyanswerscruise.com or call 800-707-1634. That's 800-707-1634. And don't delay, because spaces are limited. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. You've been listening to The Money Answer Show with Jordan Goodman. If you have a question for Jordan or his guest, please call us now at 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Now back to Jordan. Welcome back to The Money Answer Show. This is Jordan Goodman, your host. My guest this hour is Doug Warshower, whose new book is called If I'm So Smart, Where Did All My Money Go? Welcome back to the show, Doug. Thanks for having me. Uh, tell them about your uh, website and uh, what, what they can find out about at that website. Sure. My website is DougWarshower.com, D-O-U-G-W-A-R-S-H-A-U-E-R.com. And... Uh, in addition to being able to buy the book on the website, I have a blog that I update weekly, as well as customizable spreadsheets that help you use the tools that are described in the book in a more interactive way than obviously can be done when you're uh, getting the information from uh, the static pages of the book. Uh, now, in addition to getting your housing under control, your cars, your transportation expenses, you say it's also possible to save Uh, 10% of your net income every year. How is that uh, doable? Well, that's really the key to the question that we were talking about just before we went to the break. If you're saving 10% of your income every year, that is the money that you're going to start to use towards these bigger short-term goals and then the long-term goals. So your short-term goals are buying a car and then buying a house. These are the types of things that you need to save for and use that 10% for, but you're going to want to do it in 10 years or less. So you'll start devoting your 10% savings toward buying a car, and two or three years later, you should be able to buy that car. And similar to that is the process of buying a house. You're going to determine what the down payment you need to buy the house that you want is. And that might be a five or a seven or an eight-year savings program because houses are more expensive and you want to get to a 20% down payment. But after that five, six, eight-year period, the 10% savings will have accumulated enough money so that you can go ahead and buy the house. And then you now think of where you're going in your life. So you have bought the car and that's the last time you need to use your 10% savings towards buying the car. Now you've bought the house, and that's the last time you need to use your 10% savings towards buying the house. Now you're freeing your money up for the more long-term goals. So the next one for most people is devoting their 10% savings towards saving for their children's college education. And that will take 
upwards of 20 years for most people because you start when your children are born and 20 years later they're going to college. And then while you're doing that, for most people, you're also saving for your retirement. And that, of course, is the longest horizon. We can save 30, 40 years before we retire so that we'll have enough money left when we retire. But that is how we use this 10% savings to achieve all these goals. It's done in a sequential manner. It's not done, as many people think, in order of priority. You don't think, well, which of these do I want the most? You really need to do it from a time-based perspective, because if you don't do it from a time-based perspective, you'll be ready to buy that home, and you won't have the money there for it. And, and so you either stretch yourself and you put a smaller down payment down, which is disadvantageous in many ways, or you have to wait a little bit longer than you ideally would have. So I really encourage people to think about their goals in order of time and use that 10% savings in order to make sure you can achieve those goals when you're ready to achieve them. Since you earn almost nothing on savings these days, where should you put that 10% savings so it's earning something while you're saving it? Well, it really depends on your time horizon. That's the A number one question you need to ask yourself when you think about where should you put your money. If you're saving for your short-term goals, like your home or your car, you need to keep those savings in very secure fixed income investments. You don't want to be investing that money in the stock market because the chances that the stock market will drop are too great for you to take the risk. We have seen the stock market drop a number of times in the last 10 years, so it should be very fresh in everybody's minds the amount of risk that you're taking. The reward for taking that risk for when you are saving for a short-term goal is really very minimal. Think of if, if you're saving for buying a car and you plan to buy that car in two years and, and you put that money in the stock market, and the stock market doesn't drop, it performs like you expect it to perform, and say you get 9 or 10% on your money for the two years, instead of buying that car in 24 months, you're going to buy it in 23 months. That's all the benefit that there is for putting your money in the stock market for two years. It's virtually nothing. But if you're unlucky and you put the money in the stock market and 22 months from now the stock market drops by 30%, now you're going to have to wait another year before you can buy that car and you're going to have to save more and more over that year because the money that you had put away is gone. So I really discourage people from putting their short-term savings funds into the stock market or any type of equity-based investment. So what kind of fixed income vehicles should you get? Because again, you're, with CDs, you're getting less than 1%, money market's zero, treasury bills zero. Right. And, what, and what you need to do is just accept it. You are not going to make much money on the money that you're investing, it's not the investment return that's going to enable you to achieve your savings goal. It's the savings. You're going to put your money away, that 10% savings a year, you're going to put that away every month for the next two years, and you're going to be able to achieve your goal, even if you're earning nothing on the money. But the good news is that inflation <laughs> is very low, so it's not going to cost you much more two years from now than it would cost you to buy it today. 
That's novel to a lot of people because they want to be earning something on that they money. They do. And that's how people make mistakes. It's very easy to think, I can't put my money in the bank and get nothing on it. And so my alternative to that is to take a more risky investment. But you get very, very little benefit in return for that risk, and the risk is real. The risk means you're going to spend three years saving for your car instead of two years. It's not a good risk to take, except the fact that you're going to earn nothing on your money, and you're going to be able to achieve your goal. And when, when you accept that you're going to earn nothing on your money, and you're still going to achieve your goal, it's very freeing, because you think, well, I know now I'm just putting my money in the bank, or I'm putting my money in treasury bills, or I'm putting my money into a, a very secure mutual bond fund, and I know I'm going to earn nothing on that money, but I'm still going to be able to buy that car or buy that house in two years or four years or six years. That's a, a great feeling to have. It's a, it's a sense of confidence that your ability to achieve your objectives is not at all dependent on the stock market. You have another uh, uh, chapter in your book. Again, your book is called, If I'm So Smart, Where Did All My Money Go?, about paying off debt. Uh, so if you have a lot of consumer credit card debt, high interest debt particularly, uh, how, what strategies can you use to pay that off and get that under control? Well, the strategy is that you focus all of your attention on that objective. That comes before all of the, the positive savings objectives. You don't start putting your money away for the house and the car and the retirement and the college savings until you've paid off the debt. And the reason for that is that debt carries higher interest rates, typically. If we're talking about credit card or other consumer debt, you're paying such high interest rates on that that your investments can't possibly match it. And so you take all of your savings, and if you're in debt and you can do the 10% savings, it's a really great time to push yourself to save even more than 10%. Make it 12%, 13%, 15%, and use those resources to pay down your debt as fast as you can. And what I, and, and almost all uh, people who talk about paying off debt recommend is that you focus on one particular debt at a time. And I don't really think, about, think it matters that much which one you focus on. You might want to focus on one with, with a low value so you can pay that off quickly, or you might want to focus on the one with the highest interest rate. But pick one and focus on that and really pay that down as quickly as you can and eliminate that one and then move on to focusing on the next debt that you have and pay that down and eliminate it. And over a fairly short period of time, you can make a lot of progress in paying off your debt that way. You also have a whole chapter on investing in stocks and investing in equities. Uh, how should one go about starting to invest in stocks if you don't have a lot of experience doing it? Well, if you're saving for your long-term goals now, retirement savings for sure, and college savings, at least when your children are young, these are circumstances where you do need to be invested in equities because you can't earn nothing on your money over the long term like that and expect to be able to achieve your goals. So there's a big difference between how I suggest you approach your short-term goals and your long-term goals. If you're saving for a long-term goal and you're going to need to use 
equity investing to achieve that goal, then it's really important that you be very careful in how you invest that money. Don't try to pick the stocks that you think are going to be the big winners. It is really, really difficult to do that. I'm a professional investor, and I don't ever try to do that. I don't think that people can successfully expect to pick stocks that are going to win. And similarly, I think that it's really, really hard to pick the mutual funds, the actively managed mutual funds, that are going to beat the stock market. Here is a case where you can go the safe route and pick what are called equity index funds that essentially will match the market return through the market's ups and downs. And, and you will match the market return during the downs, so that if you've been in index funds for the last 10 years, you don't have a, a, a whole lot to show for it. But if you have a long enough time horizon, and that really means 20 or 30 years in most cases, then most of the time, investing in equity index funds is going to be your best chance at achieving your goals. And do you uh, say that there should be mutual funds or exchange-traded funds? I don't think it really matters whether you choose a mutual fund or an exchange-traded fund. As long as you choose a quality fund with a good reputation that's been around for a while, whether you pick a, a traditional index fund or an exchange-traded fund is, is not something you need to really focus on. Okay, we're going to take a break. My guest this hour is Doug Warshower. His new book is called If I'm So Smart, Where Did All My Money Go? And his website is DougWarshower.com. We'll be back after this. It's up or down, or if you're looking to improve your portfolio, our experts are ready to talk to you. Call now, toll free, 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Voice America Business Network. Hi, this is Jordan Goodman, host of The Money Answer Show. I cordially invite you to join me and some of my favorite investing experts for the Money Answers Investing Cruise from February 12th through February 19th, 2011, on board Holland America's luxurious MS Eurodam. In this volatile investing environment, good advice is more important than ever, and this exclusive Caribbean cruise offers not only fun, but also a full week of highly informative events with me and other top investing experts like Ray Lucia and Charles Payne from Fox News Network. During seminars, panel discussions, and Q&As, at cocktail parties and at dinners, we will discuss current market conditions and the best places for your investment dollars. Meanwhile, luxuriate in the amenities of Holland America's newest ship and visit some of the best ports for shopping, sightseeing, and sunning. For more information, go to www.moneyanswerscruise.com or call 800-707-1634. That's 800-707-1634. And don't delay because spaces are limited. It's all Arizona, all over the world. 
If you're a local Arizona high school sports fan or if you're a transplanted fan somewhere else in the world, have we got a show for you. The first Internet sports radio talk show focusing solely on high school sports is The Coach's Corner with Scott Lovely. Tune in to talk about your favorite teams, players, or coaches. It's 100% Arizona high school sports coverage and a little bit more. Tune in Mondays at 4 p.m. Pacific Time, 7 p.m. Eastern to the Voice America Sports Channel. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. You've been listening to The Money Answer Show with Jordan Goodman. If you have a question for Jordan or his guest, please call us now at 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Now back to Jordan. Welcome back to The Money Answer Show. This is Jordan Goodman. My guest this hour is Doug Warshower, uh, whose new book is called If I'm So Smart, Where Did All My Money Go? Welcome back to the show, Doug. Thanks for having me. And again, uh, tell people uh, your website where they can find out more about what you do. Sure. The website is DougWarshower.com, D-O-U-G-W-A-R-S-H-A-U-E-R.com. And on the website... You can, of course, get the book, but uh, the great thing about the website is it's got customizable spreadsheets that you can download, and many of them are free, and you can use those spreadsheets to help build a financial plan that is totally tailored to your personal circumstances. You have a whole section of the book on retirement and what you need for retirement and how to live in retirement, setting a, 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 a target for how much you need in retirement. Is this something a lot of people are doing rightly or wrongly? What is the state of that these days? Well, I think that the the challenge for most people is that they don't know whether they're doing it rightly or wrongly because it's so complicated. So I have got another character in the book. His name is Mitchell. And Mitchell's in his mid-50s, and his kids are getting ready to go to college. And he knows that in the not-too-distant horizon, he is hoping to retire, but he has absolutely no idea whether he is on a path that will enable him to retire in the way that he wants to or whether he's not. And so we go through for him what are all the different things that he needs to think about to know whether he's gotten enough money saved to retire or if he doesn't, what does he need to change in order to set himself on the path for retirement. So uh, one of the things you're talking here about is Social Security. Uh, do you think people, baby boomers today who are retiring, uh, should expect to get Social Security? I do. I think that if you're a baby boomer and you are either already uh, retired or are getting close to the point where you're going to retire, chances are that the Social Security laws that are in place today that govern your uh, Social Security benefit are not going to change. And if they do change, they aren't going to change very much. It's the younger generations that are likely to see changes in the way their benefit is calculated, because at some point the government's going to have no choice. They're going to have to take action to make the Social Security Fund more solvent. And that is likely to mean a reduction in benefits for certain people. But if we look back and think about how it was changed in the 80s, almost 30 years ago now, when they faced a similar solvency problem, people who were close to retirement saw no change in their benefits 
retirement age actually was moved up from 65 to 67, but it was done on a gradual basis depending on the year you were born. So if you were already 62 and you thought in three years you were going to be eligible for your full Social Security retirement benefit, that didn't change. They didn't want to pull the rug out from under people who were very close to retirement. And I think that it is safe to expect any changes to the law, which will be forthcoming, are going to be done in a similar way. So if you're 20 years old now, by the time you retire, you are not likely to be able to retire at 67 and get your your full Social Security benefit. You probably will be looking at a, a retirement age of 69, 70, 71, 72. But people, you have a lot of time to prepare for that. People, the so-called three legs of the stool, uh, Social Security, pensions, and people's personal retirement uh, savings, uh, many kids are not getting pensions these days, and their 401ks may have been decimated by what's happened in the markets recently. So how could people, say in their 50s, who have a little bit of time but not that much time left, make up for, um, you know, they're going to get less of Social Security, maybe a little or no pension, and not enough savings. How can they deal with that situation if they're going to be living a long time? Well, there's, here's a, there's a couple of things that they need to think about. Number one, they have probably not had very good results with the money that they have saved in the stock market over the last 10 years. But if you're 55 or so, and so you're looking at maybe 10 years before you retire, you have not just the 10 years before you retire to earn that money back, but you then have a retirement which may very well last till you're 90 years old. So you're still looking at another 35 years from now where you have a chance for that money that has done very poorly in its investments for the last 10 years to kind of bounce back. And so that's why having a very long time horizon is critical when you're talking about equity investing. You need to be able to withstand 10 or 15 bad investment years and be ready for the 10 or 15 good investment years, which will eventually follow them. Because when you look over 200 years of history, equity returns are extremely consistent. They tend to average 6 to 7% greater than inflation. But you need to have 30-plus years to have confidence that you're going to get that historical return. So that's said, one thing that, that people can think about. Here's, here's another thing that people mm-hmm. need to, to think about. If you have paid off your house before you retire, you can take the money that you had been spending on your mortgage and redirect that money into retirement savings. That is an underappreciated source of retirement savings for most people. So it's really, really valuable to be able to pay off the mortgage on your house when you're 55, 60 years old and have a good 10 or 15 years of juiced up retirement savings right before you retire. You say that in retirement you should estimate that your retirement spending will be 65% of your peak income during your earning years. Is that realistic for what's going on today? It is realistic if you own your home because we talked earlier about how 
your home typically constitutes, or housing typically constitutes about 35% of people's annual expenditures. Now, if you take that 35% and you eliminate the mortgage, you're only going to be left with about 10% of your money needing to go towards housing expenditures. You'll still have to pay your utilities and you'll still have to pay some repairs and maintenance on your home and you'll still have to pay your real estate taxes, but you will not have to pay that mortgage payment. And when you don't have to pay that mortgage payment, you can wipe out a significant chunk of your expenditure. So if you were spending 90% of your income while you had a mortgage payment, knocking that down to 65% of your income when you don't have a mortgage payment is really very realistic for most people. We have about a minute left. Uh, you have a chapter on uh, college financial aid. Uh, are people realistic about what kind of financial aid they're going to get uh, when they apply from colleges? Well, it's a big mystery, I think, for most people. It, like saving for retirement, saving for college, entire, and there's so much complexity in it. How much financial aid are you going to get? What schools are your children going to go to? How much is college inflation going to be? And so people have no choice but kind of throw up their arms and say, I'm going to save something, but I have no idea whether it's going to be enough. And what I want to do with saving for college, just like saving for retirement and all the other things we've talked about, is demystify the process, show people how you can make a realistic calculation so that you know how much you should be saving for college and how much you should be saving for retirement. And that is the way that you can take all the different objectives that you have and allocate your personal resources in an appropriate way so that you really can meet all the different goals that you have. Terrific. Well, thanks so much. My guest during this hour of The Money Answer Show has been Doug Warshower. His new book is called If I'm So Smart, Where Did All My Money Go? Uh, you can find out more about it at his website, dougwarshower.com, spelled W-A-R-S-H-A-U-E-R. Thanks for being on the show, Doug. And we'll be back again with another edition of the Money Answer Show next week. Goodbye for now. Thank you for joining Jordan Goodman and the Money Answer Show. If you have a question for Jordan, please visit his website at www.moneyanswers.com. And be sure to tune in every Monday at 12 p.m. Pacific Standard Time right here on Voice America Business.